Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. And welcome to Really True Fiction. My name is David Parker. And my name is Luke Mason. And today we're going to be discussing the wonderful novel Huck Finn. <laughs> By Mark Twain. By Mark Twain. So Huck Finn was written in 1885. Uh, it is a kind of sequel to Tom Sawyer in that it is in the timeline after Tom Sawyer and picks up where Tom Sawyer left off. But it is very much his own book. Yeah, and, and since you've read it more recently than I have, what do you know how long after Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn is set? Does it say in the book? I don't really remember. It seems to be almost immediately after, and actually there's an overlap where, because Tom Sawyer kind of goes into what happens long into the future. Like, right. Tom Sawyer becomes like a respectable soldier and, you know, community. Really? Leader. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas Huck Finn, you know, well, we find out what happens in Huck Finn in Huck Finn, but, uh, yeah. But the, so, so what I happens in like Huck Finn Almost is... immediately after. Okay. Because there's even events that occur, like his situation with Miss Watson and living there and going to right. church and going to school. That all kind of happens in Huck Finn at the beginning, but it's past that at the end of Tom Sawyer. Okay. So, thank yeah. you. Anyway, that helps me orient myself. <laughs> Sequentially, it is overlapping. Yes. But uh, we are immediately introduced into a first-person narrative of Huck Finn, which is obviously very different than Tom Sawyer, which is told in the third-person narrative. And I just, I love, I mean, it's been said of Mark Twain that he's the king of dialogue. And you see that even in the mental dialogue that Huck Finn is having as he's telling the whole story. And actually, the book is basically set in that he's writing this book. He's writing down his adventure. It is kind of like a journal. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot like a journal, except it's obvious that he's not writing it while it's happening. Right. He, he's, like he it, is reflecting on things that have happened in his past. And the whole book is that way. The whole book, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's told almost entirely from that, that perspective. And uh, it just speaks to the quality of Mark Twain as a writer that he's able to write a very good book in third-person narrative and a very good book in first-person narrative. Yeah, and I mean, how deep into the dialect of oh, the time he gets it's incredible it's almost it's a little bit hard to read even just because of how trying to make sure i'm making like i'm getting the words right yeah do you know yeah. what i mean like how instead of wasn't it'll be warrant yeah yeah so like w-a-r-n-t so instead of was not is war not i guess yeah. And yet, and yet, somehow he makes it so it still flows. You like, you still feel like you can understand it fairly easily. At least I, I, I got that feeling. Well, he definitely makes it seem like he knew the cadences. Oh, for sure, quite well of the people that he's writing about. And it takes a lot. He, he's able to write in an accent, which I find incredible. Like with Jim, he's using his accent and and his uh, cadence and all that, and you feel that 
when you're reading it. You're you're listening to someone with an accent talk. Mm-hmm. Jim's dialogue is definitely the hardest to read. Oh, for sure. Yes, no, definitely. <laughs> because presumably it was the hardest to understand, or uh, like to someone ears like me. Yes, maybe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, exactly. Probably Jim's friends and family. It'd be a lot easier to understand because that's the kind of lexicon and elocution they're swimming in, right? But you know to to us, a yeah. modern reader is like, wow! Like, I really have to decipher what these words mean the way that Mark Twain wrote them. Yeah, no, but I think it, it gives you that experience. It almost feels like you're in a foreign land, really, like listening to your own <laughs> language. I love actually they talk about language in the book, right? Where where Jim is talking about people who speak French, and Huck Finn is trying to explain to him that in other parts of the world, right, people speak entirely different languages, and he just seems, thinks that's utterly ridiculous <laughs> and can't even comprehend. Yeah, how it could yeah, be yeah possible. that's right. Like how, like, but why don't they know about English? Well, and the best part is that like, Huck's going in and he's like, "Well, dogs don't speak English, and like cats don't speak English," yeah. and then and Jim's like, "Well, that doesn't make any sense because they're not humans." <laughs> what? <laughs> Why don't humans speak that? Right. Yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that part of it where it's it's such a great um, little snapshot of Huck and Jim's relationship throughout the book where Huck is kind of, in a really weird way, he's kind of Jim's educator about the world. And yet... And and Huck is like the least qualified educator (laughs) out there. Well, and also Huck is very frequently convinced by Jim's arguments. Like, he's convinced by that argument. He's like, yeah, they are men. Why aren't they speaking English? Like, he gets it, but he's like, I can't really explain this. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, I see your logic, Jim. Well, it's like... (laughs) Your logic is sound. I just... It's like, you're wrong. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I know I know you're wrong, but your logic is definitely sound. <laughs> yeah. So uh so anyway, amazing book considered by Hemingway to be the great American novel. All other American novels have have come from it in his mind. Fact, oh really? Yeah, in fact Hemingway said that it was the best American novel that had been written up to that point and nothing great had been written after. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean that's a little harsh. Oh. So wait, so Hemingway said that like was does that mean there were good books before Huck Finn? No, no, he was basically saying Huck Finn was the first good one, and there hasn't been anything good since. <laughs> well, that also means that's hey, that the only good one. Book. Yeah, it's the only good one. Exactly. Really? So. What were did he give like any? When you read about that, did he give any re- like details or reasons why he thought that? He no, he didn't. Uh, he didn't elaborate on it. But I, he was famous enough. Where although he didn't I, have I, to I have read, <laughs> I have read that it, that um, Mark Twain's writing was most like his in Huck Finn, and and like any great writer, you praise things that make your own writing look better. Right. So maybe Hemingway was already famous enough where he could stand on his celebrity <laughs> over his insight <laughs> yeah. for this kind of thing. Well, there's a. I think it is a good insight in that this book defines American literature in a, in a lot of ways. Okay. And you see it in Steinbeck, you see it in Fitzgerald, you see it in Hemingway, you, you see it, everyone is kind of following in Mark Twain's footsteps in Huck Finn. Like, do you mean like the prose? I'd say stylistically, but also like the themes that are being dealt with, also the adventure story right. like, seems very, and the coming of age aspect of it. But also, you take like, so many different characters get introduced in this book, right? You have so many different themes. You have Huck's dad, who's like the drunk, and this it's the portrayal of this drunk in the 1800s. No, sorry, 1900s. No, 1800s. Right, century. <laughs> yes, okay. Because, um, yeah, because this book, though written in 1885, is set, it says 40 to 50 years before that, which would be 1835 to 1845, yeah, I guess. Yeah, so 1800s. Uh, and 
I always get the century. If you say the 18th uh, yeah, century. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> 19th century. So World War II? Yeah, no. No, no. <laughs> no. Finn. Finn, figure it out. So anyway, what I love about it is he takes us into so many different themes. Like he takes us into different areas that people existed during this time. We have like the wealth that he encounters, but we also have the vagabonds, the religious experiences that he encounters. We we also see the dark side. We have like the feuding families that are just like slaughtering yeah. each other. Right. But yeah. So basically the plot of this book. Well, yeah. I mean, so I'm just trying to, cause I haven't read much Fitzgerald, but I have read a lot of Steinbeck and Steinbeck is very much the almost like chapter to chapter. It's like really high level, observation about like the most almost cosmic view of what's happening in the world that he's created and then a hyper zoomed in view of whatever characters he's talking about he goes micro macro very yeah yes so that's a perfect way to put it and i definitely see the part of steinbeck in the characters i just so what like which because you read this book recently what macro parts do well, you I think see he's really. Twain. I mean, so the, the the macro theme is obviously the Mississippi River, or arguably the greatest river in the United States, and like this, yeah. this almost spiritual. It almost exists as its own character throughout the book because mm-hmm. it is nature acting on Jim and Huck and taking them places and bringing them together and, t- and tearing them apart. So, I mean, the theme I would argue is the Mississippi River and American culture around the Mississippi River, uh, yeah. for, and then and then kind of maybe the nature of that like and and the nature as the back as the setting and the backdrop because that is definitely steinbeckian as well and like geography is destiny kind of thing right? uh, yes. yeah yeah so. and that would have been an era where that would was a huge part of the american zeitgeist yeah right yeah. The, the late 1800s and um, like there wasn't really i mean there was sort of like that part of the united states was was central to its very identity and yeah and like relatively new in comparison to the rest of it and when twain would have been writing it's still the wild west yeah maybe not missouri as much but a lot of america is still under that kind of you know the old western feel and that you see in movies and tv and we're like in the age of the steamboat like we're it's a very yeah, different right. time right so mm. yeah so i like that i think that would be how i'd compare it to steinbeck oh good okay Thanks for helping me out with that. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. But yeah, no, so going into the plot here. So we start with Huck in, uh, is it Kingstown? I can't remember. Yeah, in the village where he and, uh, or the town where he and Tom Sawyer and their friends have had many adventures in Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And we encounter Huck Finn currently living with the widow and dealing Miss Watson? With... No, Miss Watson is the housekeeper. Right. Okay. Uh, the widow. Douglas? Widow Douglas. That's yeah, there it is. Yeah. Uh, living with I her. promise I'll help out somewhat in this episode. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> so the widow is trying to civilize Huck Finn, who's lived a very uncivilized life. Yeah, right, of course. And uh, so she's taking him to church, and she's making him wear regular clothes, and she's making him go to school. These are all things that people like Tom Sawyer loved about Huck that are being taken from him. Part of his identity is being taken away. But I love how it's done because... What we see Mark Twain do is he's showing the development of a person who's being civilized, and he starts to engage with and love those things and start to feel comfortable in them and enjoy them until his dad shows up. 
and his dad shows up, because as we'll all remember from Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn's actually incredibly wealthy. And yeah, because he gets a lot of that treasure exactly. at the end of Tom Sawyer. He and, he and Tom Sawyer split it or whatever. And the, so the judge is taking care of the money for, for Huck Finn and for Tom Sawyer. But uh, we see the father come and then immediate regression, basically, on, on Huck's part after his father challenges it in court and takes him and then, and then steals him away and keeps him locked up in his cabin. And they're living a very subsistence, off-the-land lifestyle in this cabin. But his father is a, is a terrible, violent drunk who numerous times in the book is... Very to, horrible. Oh, awful. Beating him, trying to kill him. It goes into these deliriums of sorts when he's really drunk. Mm-hmm. So Huck's got to escape. Huck finds a creative way to escape and uh, ends up float, or floating down the river with Jim, who is the widow, one of the widow's slaves, who is trying to escape. And the reason Jim's trying to escape is because he was going to be sold down to Orleans, and he didn't want to go there. Well, his family was there, and he, and he didn't want to just be a slave somewhere else, and who knows what would have happened. Right. Because he had family. that He was married and had children, mm-hmm. right? But he didn't want to leave them, and so he was going to be go try to be free and earn enough money to save his children and his wife or buy them back. And so the, the, the majority of the story is this trip down the, the Missouri and then the Mississippi River. Yeah, with with uh, where all the the things happen that happen yeah, to exactly. Huck and Jim with this uh, yeah it's this uh, this amazing adventure floating down a river trying to get to the north where slaves are free yeah and that's that's like the that's the overarching plot is the adventures of Huckleberry Finn are essentially Huck on this river with Jim on a raft but there's also a lot of like kind of subplots yeah. Well, um, it's like kind of a lot of vignettes. We, yeah. It's we see uh, it's very similar to Tom Sawyer in that it's it's a yeah. bunch of unique stories contained within a larger framework. But it's cool because as you're floating down the river, you encounter each adventure in a yeah, different geographic that, location. Yeah. There's the feud you mentioned, like the feuding families he comes across. The most memorable part of the book is the Duke and the King. Yes. I think oh, they're, they're I can't phenomenal. Remember what, I can't remember what their names are. I don't even no, know I if they say them. Well, I don't in the think book. They, they just yeah. It's these two hucksters. And they actually sh- call them the King and the Duke pretty much throughout it. And they're basically these con artists. Charlatans. Who are, yeah, who are traveling down the river making ridiculous sums of money. By fooling everybody. By, yeah, by cheating and fooling and doing whatever they can. Yeah. Uh, and actually that theme goes over a few different stories because they end up in different locations yeah. throughout. Yeah, so they come in and out. I remember I read I first read Huck Finn... Maybe about 10 years ago. I can't remember exactly when. And then reread it again more recently. And there's a lot, there's obviously, because the same author, there's obviously a lot of similarities and overlaps in the prose and the humor between Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And Tom Sawyer is in this book quite a good amount too, especially near the end. He's in it a lot more. Yeah, the beginning, he kind of bookends the book. Yeah, The, the two major differences, I would say, is that obviously the third person of Tom Sawyer versus first person narrative style of this one. But this book is like, even though it's got a lot of funny parts, it's a much more serious book. Yeah, than, than Tom the, Sawyer. the themes that are being dealt with are far more intense, I think. First and foremost, the theme of slavery. Slavery is portrayed much more starkly in this book than in Tom Sawyer. Like they obviously talk about slaves in Tom Sawyer, but that's never really the focus. 
Whereas, yeah, boyhood is the focus, I'd say, of Tom Sawyer, whereas with Huck Finn... The focus is about a runaway slave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, right there, you're dealing with a much more serious topic. And and Mark Twain was, like, one of the first human Democrats, like, in yeah. America. Like, he really, truly believed in it. And one of the great things about this book is it's actually addressing an issue that's still an incredibly important issue today, this, this tension between two races in the United States. But in this book, we get to see the hopefulness and excitement, in a sense, of Mark Twain as he's exploring the humanity of everyone and pointing to it. Whereas, um, like you said, in Tom Sawyer, we don't really get these those larger themes. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. Tom Sawyer is much more a, a meditation on growing up. Yeah, whereas this is a... I think like my interpretation of this book is this book is fundamentally about a person in this case Huck having like a titanic struggle internally between what he feels is right and what he feels like his society expects of him. And then there's so many little offshoots of that kind of battle, but I think that that is the more overarching scenario of yeah, there are, and a, especially because it's a first person, so we actually get narrative access into Huck's head about what's going on. There are many, many, many parts of the book where he's in, he has a tenuous dialogue inside his own head about what he should do. And so we kind of get both sides of it in his own head because he's writing it all down. Well, and I really enjoyed the struggle he has with so many different things, even the struggle with superstition. So when he grabbed, <laughs> another great theme of the book <laughs> when he is brings, superstition. When he brings back the snake skin. Yeah. And then, you know, tries to scare Jim with the dead snake that he killed, the dead rattlesnake during the flooding. And then it turns out that the snake's mate nested at the bottom of the de- <laughs> with the with the uh with the dead snake. Yeah. At the at the bottom of Jim's bed and then bites him and almost kills him. But Huck fully and truly believes that he caused this by bringing... And there's so many moments where you're just in the head of someone back then, and you're like, they really believe this. Yeah. This isn't like like throwing salt over your shoulder now. Like People are like, well, what is that going to do? But then it was like, it was significant. Yeah, the old wives' tales of today were just the survival guides of yesteryear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like in a chaotic universe... You want to believe there's some order, there's some reason behind yeah. what's happening. The the mind craves meaning, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Oh, I, I love how well it's done because when you're in his head, you really you start to wonder, like, you better never look over your shoulder at a moon. Like, you, <laughs> you might die. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah, the superstitions of Huck um, are definitely... For me, I guess, I can't help but look back in the lens I have. It's a massive point of humor. Well, and he, strugg- and he struggles with it. And right? I think, but it's also a humor, a point of humor for Twain. Oh, yes, I would. Because think, a yeah. lot of what Twain, uh, Twain obviously capturing that really well, but uh, if you read like all of Twain's stuff or even anything, you're just like, okay, Twain was a the prime lambaster of superstition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and no. muddy thinking. I, and- I, but, it, and yet, He's able to portray it in a character in in the character in a way that makes you feel like understanding towards them yep. as opposed to uh you know ridicule. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean it's it also is because Huck doesn't really have any power, so it's more charming, I guess, in someone like him as opposed to people who do have power and then use superstitious thinking to maintain power yes. or oppression yes. or something true, like that. True. To me that's a big difference, but I do want to kind of start with talking about Huck 
and this really impressive tension that Twain makes because uh, basically the the internal battle that Huck has almost the whole book is whether he should help Jim escape or turn Jim in to the local authorities trying to find him. And he he has this battle with himself pretty much perpetually throughout the book where he talks to Jim and he sees Jim and he like like his conscience is pulling him he's like yeah Jim's a person I don't want him to be a slave but then also he tells himself but like and this is Huck thinking to himself he says but my society says he's a slave and my culture says he's a slave and the laws and I'm breaking the law property right yeah, basically he's, property. he's stealing property from someone and and Huck knows you shouldn't steal property so he's got like moral arguments on both sides of the ledger to him so i think what was so triumphant for me in in trying to like dissect this tension in huck's own mind was how because he does in the end he does choose to save jim every time and he helps jim escape and so that like the part that was so oh yes for me was that here was a story about a person who was able to make the right ethical decision with no other real, what would you say, learning or resources at his disposal other than his own conscience, right? And with a lot of other things on the other side, like, well, it's against the law. Jim's property. I'm stealing. I'm abetting this. It's against God. He goes into that a lot. He's like, he thinks he's going to go to hell because he's stealing someone's property. And it's crazy to think, like that's a lot of pressure to have on yourself, <laughs> and then to still and help then to a still runaway make slave. the other one, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I can't remember exactly, but I think Huck's like fourteen or fifteen, maybe. So he's still, you know, right in the heat of adolescence. And so, of all of the things in this book that struck me the most, the thing that I'm left with the deepest is how Huck is able to make the right ethical decision, but even still like not totally sure of himself is like, well, I guess I, I think I'm pretty sure there's a line in the book. He says, well, I guess I'm going to go to hell. No, then. there is. Yeah. There's a line where, <laughs> but that like, think about that. Like he chooses as far as he's concerned, heaven and hell are absolutely existent metaphysical entities that people go to when they die. And he knows if he helps a slave escape, he's going to hell and he still chooses like, well, I guess I'm going to hell because I still want to help Jim escape. Yeah, and and it seems to me that he doesn't even fully understand why he's making that decision. He doesn't seem to to have a... He hasn't made some kind of logical or metaphysical argument to himself about why. He just knows in his gut that, like, Jim's a person. Yeah, He doesn't say that even, but in his gut, it's like, no, I see this man and he's a person. And there's even that scene where he has all those memories with Jim. Because there's the kind of the... The uh, the dark night of the soul for Huck is when they're almost to freedom, and like Jim's just talking about freedom all the time, and suddenly he's like, "What am I doing?" And he just feels sick. He's like, "I'm stealing. I I am a moral reprobate, right?" Is well, the, because in that moment, the ethereal idea of "Oh, I'm going to help this slave escape" is becoming a reality. Like it's actually about to happen in the real life version of what's going on. Yeah, and and so he's encountered this. And he doesn't come to to some. He doesn't reason his way into. Oh, he just knows. He has this, this conscience, I guess, like a true moral conscience that's telling him what's right. And he is going against all of society in saying it's right. Mm-hmm. 
and is willing to do it anyway. And 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 doesn't not just willing to do it, actively pursues it at times when Jim disappears or Jim gets sold to someone else. He's like he even tricks people who are about to find Jim. There's a really hilarious yeah. scene kind of near the start of the book where there's these two, I think they're slave catchers that are talk to Huck and in case it's not obvious at this point in the book, Huck is white yeah, yes, and Jim yes. is black and they are hanging out together on this raft and Jim has stayed at the raft and these two slave catchers are basically hot on his trail. They're about to find him and Huck doesn't exactly lie to the slave catchers, but he leads them on to believe that the people at the raft are actually his family and that they all have smallpox. Exactly. And, <laughs> and suddenly the guy... And the he guy's like, we're getting out of here. This is like a, a Huck special in my mind because yeah. he's able to act kind of the innocent part. Oh, I don't know what's going he can, on. He, he can cry, and he, but he seems to understand. He's he's crafty. He's witty. He, he's able to assess a situation quickly. He's kind of that that hero that we see further on in different literary genres, like the um, the mischievous boy who comes from like humble beginnings. He, you know what? It, it, like Aladdin, yeah. in a sense, right? He like, kind of only knows what to do when he's under pressure. Yeah. Well, like, because I think his whole life has been like, well, how am I going to find food? Okay, yeah. now I have to come up with a solution. How am I going to convince people not to, you know, put he's me so, in jail? Yeah, he's very practical, isn't yeah. he? Like he's and because well, so a lot of the humor in the book does come from Huck thinking about things. Yes, but <laughs> one of my favorite is the very beginning when he's a part of Tom's gang, and Tom's really just still playing the the boy who's imagining things, and you know, they're a, they're a robber murdering band of scoundrels. And so Tom is telling them all of the other members of the gang about this circus that's coming to town and how they're going to rob. There's tons of Arabs and elephants. And he's like really building this up. Oh, it's Prince Ali. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then they show up and it's a church picnic that they're attacking. Like, <laughs> yeah. And they go in and like terrorize this church picnic. And Huck's like... This isn't a circus. Like <laughs> nothing that you told us is going to be here is here. There's no wealth and no treasure. And like, what is going on? And he's flabbergasted <laughs> that Tom Sawyer could say all these things exist. And then Tom's like, well, actually, there was a genie that made it appear like it was a picnic, <laughs> ah, but classic. really, it was actually a. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to throw that one on Huck. If you're yeah. friends with Tom oh, Sawyer, <laughs> you got to be expecting nothing like what is being told to you. For sure, for sure. No, I agree. But I just. Like you said, his practicality, yeah. he's unable to separate fiction from reality to yeah. some degree. Well, yeah, because throughout the book, when he's left to his own devices to just muse for a little while, like, hmm, what do I think about slavery? What do I think about God? What do I think about this? And, and, like, and he's contemplating a lot of really deep subjects throughout the book. There's Because it's first-person narrative, you're able to just get right into his head about everything. And so and every time he's thinking, it's about these really, like... Whoa, man! But he's the his conclusions are often so funny, and yeah, and, yes, and, and, yes. and that's mostly just the way Twain uses prose and how Huck even thinks in his own accent. Yes, <laughs> <apparently>. yes, <laughs> and how yeah, I don't know. I just chuckled all the time when Huck was thinking. But I was also like, I do want to kind of. He doesn't need an argument. Yeah, to, yeah that's a good yeah to save Jim you know he in fact he's got all the arguments the other way like he knows them kind of well I don't even know if they rise to the level of argument he just kind of 
is he knows the dogmas. He yeah, knows the dogmas, and he's yeah. aware of all of their implications, and he knows. And he's been beaten up his whole life, so he knows what that's like, and he doesn't love it. <laughs> no, no. And Although yet, he seems to be able to bear it more than most yeah, could. Right? And yet he, like, it seems like he's friends with Jim even before they go on the river, or at least friendly. But there are so many great interactions between Huck and Jim on the river. Just conversations, little adventures, like you said, that humanize Jim to Huck. And vice versa. And I think that that is kind of whenever Huck seems to be getting to the point where he's like, okay, I'm going to turn Jim in because I just can't break the law like this. I can't break God's will like this. I can't. He kind of always reminds himself of the human side of Jim in some ways. Like, but yeah, you'll have a memory of like something that Jim did, like yeah. looking out for him or, or, a, or like, well, he's got family too. Like it, there is like, there's this really great, comparison he makes where he's like well you know jim has family too and i care like people care about their families i can't imagine jim or black people are any different than that so maybe i shouldn't turn (laughs) you know like there are these these really funny like from our perspective almost adorable little epiphanies that huck has where it's like well you know he likes to laugh and he likes to be spend time with his friends, so maybe I shouldn't turn him. <laughs> you know, like these kind of things that a realization today would just be like, oh, oh you'd have to be so backwards today <laughs> yeah. to get. So, but it, and again, this is Mark Twain capturing the time period, like yeah. the way that we hear the mental dialogue that that Huck's having about abolitionists, like they're just evil, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. as if somehow, like he he has these preconceived. <laughs> but he doesn't know anything about. He doesn't them. know anything about any of it and yet he he he's holding to these things and saying well this is the way the reality is but he's rebelling against reality mm-hmm. in a sense or his his perception of reality well you know what this is i mean now just talking about it, it reminds me of like how in our own time uh gay rights has taken wonderful steps forward in the public square essentially and yet colloquially so much of that is attributed to <laughs> Like Will and Grace. Yeah. Right? Like the TV show. It's attributed to stories and characters that we're introduced to. You know, in a non-trivial way, probably like this book can be like considered a original Will and Grace type of contribution to the culture with Twain showing Jim, a black person in the book, but just being a person, you know? And like, again, in 2019, this is so obvious that it's tedium, if not offensive. But in 1885, still, there would have been well, there was still a massive market of that people was before, who were, uh, you know, King. It was before yeah. the Civil Rights Movement, even. Yeah, there was like, well, yeah. that, 1885 is only 20 years after uh, slavery was abolished. Yeah, and so this you is still have all those before gener- then, right? Well, the the setting is before. Yeah, then, the setting. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I, like I'm playing a bit here where I'm thinking about both, yeah, the setting and Huck and Jim, but also the audience that's going to be reading this book in 1885 who are, you know, obviously not as enlightened as we would want yet, considering we are still not now as enlightened (laughs) as we might want and how it'd be so interesting to go in a time machine and hear from people who maybe felt like this book humanized Jim to them 
in a way that probably is kind of what Will and Grace did for yeah, a, one, like a like, generation of people in whenever it was, late 90s, early 2000s, I think, that show was on the air. And I, I think this is actually a really good point that you're bringing up because I forget who said it, but it's really hard to hate someone you know. Yes. Right? And uh, I mean, I guess you could definitely hate people you know, but the point is when you get to know someone... The only people you hate who you know are your family. Yeah, or like your enemies. <laughs> like if you have some friend who's like out to... I don't know. But my point here is it's really easy to hate an something that you ideologically are told you should hate or the of course, other. Yeah. And I think that goes back to biology. I think like we're tribal creatures. Yeah. We, we grew up in, in these small bands and being an outsider was dangerous and being alone was dangerous and you wanted to keep in your tribe and you wanted to you know keep your tribe alive. And really this democratic humanism that Mark Twain is writing about is a new concept. Yes. Because it's not a biological concept. Like... This is not how we think biologically. Or if you're going to, the impulse for egalitarianism is not is, a biological. Well, it probably is just in the sense that humans do it. So there's got to right. be some yeah, yeah. biological capacity for it. However, probably not dominant. Or, yeah, that's a good, that's or a good way of putting it. Maybe not even as evolutionary advantageous right. on a large yeah. scale. Well, cert- and certainly not. In the technological period in which we spent most of our evolution, right? <laughs> yeah, I like. Yeah, we use technological in uh, very loose terms. Yeah. So yeah. So so you're you're completely right, and and we're seeing this develop through stories, yes. through getting to know someone in a fiction. And and the thing I like too about this is that it's way more believable that Huck was second guessing himself, right? Like it's way more believable. And more powerful as an idea that Huck isn't just like, okay, Jim, we're going to freedom because I know you need to be free. We now obviously be like, yeah, come on, Huck. But like anyone, Huck is swimming in the water he's in, you know? And the water he's in is pretty fucking racist, yeah, well, <laughs> you know? Literally doesn't see other people, those people as humans. Uh, yeah, like. and, you know, 14 or 15, like the amount of fortitude it would take to have someone do that in real life would be astronomical in 1845 yeah. in Missouri. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so uh, there's a believability aspect where Huck's not just like, okay, Jim, let's go. Which to me, again, makes it all the more powerful that he goes through the thought process and I guess what I would say the heart process of, you know what? All of these things being equal, I still see Jim as a person, most fundamentally, and that's why I'm going to do this thing. That conclusion on Huck's part is so much more monumentous because of his... like Context. Yeah, yeah. context and his desire to oftentimes not do that. Yeah, know? or at, at least... Yeah, he, he seems... Because it's not easy doing the right thing. <laughs> no, or even it's not even easy to know what the right thing is. And this is the struggle that we see with Huck, right? Yeah. He doesn't know what that he's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. He just knows that he can't do anything else. Well, but I think by the end of it, he's kind of come to a self-realization where, oh, actually the right thing, like, is this the right thing or not, is kind of almost the wrong question. Because it's 
like the wellspring of what he should do is just totally coming from his own experience and his own mind and his own relationship with Jim. Well, and like going back to to what I was saying about getting to know someone, once you know someone to that level, like he spent months with Jim at this yeah. point and he knows Jim for who Jim is, the the man, the the kindness that Jim shows him repeatedly, like not telling him that his dad was the dead guy in the house or you know, taking Yeah, Huck, Huck's dad was the dead guy in the house. Yeah. 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 Which is only revealed at the very end, right? Because yes. Huck doesn't want to go back because he's afraid his dad's going to be there. And his <laughs> yeah. dad is his dad's just a shit awful. Head. Like, just an like, <laughs> abusive asshole. Right? Yeah, exactly. And um, But we see Jim almost fathering Huck, even though Huck doesn't realize. he. But, but Huck does at moments realize this. And Jim actually kind of replaces the abusiveness of his father with the care that a mm-hmm. father should have for a son. Well, yeah. I I just... It, that's so true. Like, ha, Jim takes on all those human roles for Huck. Which, so that's why I think it's so meaningful where by the end, it's like a, it's, it's a, what would you even call it? Like it's a, it's a grand slam for conscience where Huck is basically saying like, even if helping Jim is the wrong thing, fuck it. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Everything in me says I should do it. So I'm going to do it. Which is interesting. And I, because sometimes I think that everything that is within us tells us to do things that are wrong. Right. Or things that like we, we have these desires that push us to things that are detrimental to our well-being, let's yeah. say, uh, whether that be. I think those are often subconscious, though. Right. They're not. You know what they, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And so and there's like then a, a similar mechanism of what I'm calling conscience, but the, also the part of your brain that pricks at you if you're engaging in things you kind of know feel wrong or icky or off the point or poorly calibrated they could be most clinically referred to as your moral spidey senses (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that does seem pretty clinical (laughs) where i don't know there's just that little person with you inside of you poking at you and i mean it'd be nicer if they were a little bit louder (laughs) yeah maybe also when you're doing that still quiet voice right and maybe even when you're doing things you shouldn't do if they were even louder still then (laughs) that would (laughs) also be helpful yeah you know but i think that you the fine listener and many others will though i cannot prove this will kind of know what i mean when yeah, I talk about and, that little part inside. But I of guess you. to dig deeper on it, like, what is this thing that we can trust, right? Because that's the interesting thing about Huck. It's not that he's trusting; he's trusting it with his actions. It is dictating his actions, but it's not. But on a conscious level, he believes he's doing the wrong thing, and yet do he cannot do other, right? He has to do this. He's being pushed to do what we would argue now, and which is the right thing. Yeah. To help Jim escape. To help Jim escape. But for him, if we're getting into his head, he, that's not what he believes. Well, I mean, I guess we'd have to go, for that case, we'd have to go very far down into the weeds about the meaning of the word believe or the meaning of the word intend or, yeah, or the meaning yeah. of, yeah, and I am much too disinterested in doing linguistic philosophy (laughs) (laughs) that's fair but yeah i think obviously the grandest part of this book is huck's eventual conquest of his own uncertainty to saving jim 
Yeah, to, he, he moves from dogmatic beliefs that would have caused him to hurt another person to to moral action repeatedly to help another person. Yeah, and I and I love this, just this, like, I don't know, to put a little, nice little epitaph on this section. Like, I love this portrayal of someone who goes through this because what it should, what I think it would, what it does for me, and I think what Twain was probably thinking about to help others with is to remove the sense of guilt or shame in not always knowing exactly what the right thing to do is and being conflicted and maybe even in a time where it's more clear-cut like having some reservations based on some things that are just it, it just breeds so much more empathy, you know? Like, it'd be so, so easy to just be like, what the fuck, Huck? <laughs> like, <laughs> nice. that aside, like, <laughs> like, just save him. What are you thinking? And yet, what seems to us now the most crystal clear moral scenario, his uncertainty, I think, opens a door to talk about having a little bit more humility as we approach moral and ethical questions because of who knows what things are internally conflicting any one of us about something that is based on who knows what social cultural familial dictates educational obstacles you name it yeah i think this actually gets on a point that I think about a lot and it's if we don't allow people to change their minds about things if we don't allow people to go on this journey that Huck did to change his view of the other and to embrace the other and instead we we lock people in to maybe what they've said or believed in the past we obviously are encountering that in an entirely different way now with social media and and everything you said you know exists forever kind of thing but if we don't allow people to change our minds, we're not going to see any progress towards this democratic humanism that we're trying to get, or that Mark Twain's trying to get, and I think we should all be striving towards. A, a good example in my mind is um, I was recently at a talk where uh, someone who was helping Syrian refugees was talking about how afraid a woman she knew was of Syrian refugees. This woman would go to the store and just sit in her car. She couldn't get out because she was afraid of terrorism, and she, she just had so much fear about these Syrian refugees. But eventually she she heard a call call to bring supplies to help them build their their new homes and things like that. And she actually showed up at this drop-in center and was suddenly blown away by the humanness of these refugees and the and the love in that place and the community and now she volunteers there all the time and her whole perspective on Islam, Syrian refugees, terrorism has changed. Because she got to know, she's spent time with people. She's she's got to know people. Yeah, like it's hard to hate someone you know. <laughs> and I think Huck's journey that Mark Twain takes us on is that journey of getting to know. Oh yeah, and I think it's so essential not to lock people in to the beliefs they had of the past. Because if we don't allow people to change their minds. We're actually pushing them to lock in. Mm -hmm. If suddenly you're just attacking someone for having a belief that you find repulsive or, or negative. Or retrograde. Or, you know, knuckle-dragging Neanderthalic troglodyte, right? <laughs> if that's 
I hope you know what we mean. (laughs) If you're treating someone like that, you're actually impeding the progress of the Human Democratic Project. Yeah. Yeah, so the next kind of fun... I believe there's a section where Tom helps Huck with Jim. So actually, my least favorite part of the entire book is the end. But So that's the end. Right. But they're like... Tom is helping Huck with Jim. So what right? what happens is that Tom shows up. So fortuitously, Huck shows the person who bought Jim from the Duke and the King and the Duke sold Jim to, right uh, to someone. And yeah, for, they sell out. They sell out. literally. They, they sell. They, like literally they find s- out about Jim and then they tell someone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And well, they 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 sell him for like forty dollars or something. Right. And. Um, Huck finds out where he is, and he shows up, uh, and they're like, oh, you you finally came? And he's like, oh, who was supposed to be here? And he's like, who am I supposed to be? And they're all excited to see him. Turns out it's Tom Sawyer's aunt and uncle. Yes. And so uh, what we see then is that he knows who Tom Sawyer is, and so he starts to pretend to be Tom Sawyer, but then he's like, oh, no, Tom Sawyer's probably going to show up here. So he intercepts Tom on the way to the house, and then Tom pretends to be Sid. Yes. <laughs> right, the and, other one. And Huck kind of fills him in on the whole Jim situation being bought and and maybe being transported away. And Tom Sawyer, being Tom Sawyer, comes up with this elaborate and an insane plan to free Jim. But because it would have been so easy to actually free Jim, he has to make he has he put he intentionally puts all these difficulties in the way to make it more difficult so it's a more epic escape yes because, yes because tom is... just wants to create an epic <laughs> story and adventure yeah the charm of tom sawyer is on full display here where he oh this task is much too easy we need to add difficulties so we have and a larger is, triumph that huck goes along with it but he's so confounded by yeah. the necessity for these things <laughs> well i believe he's well they're clearly not necessary <laughs> like, so he's confounded yes. twice over i suppose yeah. But I like so yeah. That was what was cool about that was that basically Tom and Huck are just breaking rules <laughs> all the time, Constantly, right? Yeah. But I was like, well, this is kind of cool because this is how potentially rules evolve in a particular game. Uh, game I use in the loosest sense of the term, like a particular scenario. Uh, at its most ironclad, it, the rules are the laws, but. How do you know always if a rule is a good rule or not if people playing the game can subvert the rules but still maintain the spirit of the game, I suppose? And if the spirit... Because the spirit of what Tom and Huck are doing are, well, we've got to help Jim. We've got to lie to our parents or uh, Tom's Tom's aunt and uncle. So we have to use some sort of trickery i guess and obviously at the time it would have been not well received by everyone involved to these lies and this helping a runaway slave escape but i don't know it just made me think of the think a little bit about like okay well how how do the rules of the game again in the loosest sense of the term change how do they evolve how do you improve them and i think it kind of comes down to people breaking them in an artful way that the game doesn't seem to be too disrupted and actually can be improving the gameplay, right? And the gameplay of what Tom and Huck are doing are working really hard at increasing human well-being. Yes, although in in a in the case of of Tom it seems that he's 
adding all kinds of complexity and unnecessary suffering. Uh, and, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a more Tom Sawyer right. type yes, yes. thing <laughs> with all of his machinations for sure. But and it's not even like a specific like, like they don't even talk they don't talk about this specifically in the book at all, but it struck me as this like I I guess I just would I would want to think a little bit about okay, well what changes norms? What cha- right. what changes yes mores or like kind of the normative ethics of your culture and your society and your situation and i think at least partly it can come down to people who break rules in a way that's inventive innovative thoughtful creative charming intelligent to create a new part of the game that they're playing that didn't exist before i mean if you want to just think about a sport like how great in soccer is the invention of a sideline <laughs> right <laughs> otherwise right. you're just running forever <laughs> so you can go far like sometimes when i play soccer with kids at work and there's no boundaries they just go and they just go and they just go and i mean eventually someone would just have to say well nope we're drawing lines here's the new rule and if you go out here's the consequence that's a little bit of a maybe confusing analogy because i'm talking about restricting as opposed to expanding (laughs) expanding however if the idea is to improve the game you're playing and i think that tom and tom for sure and huck confusedly are trying to improve the game of living well with humor insight happiness and trying to help other people have that and they could probably never articulate that themselves but with helping jim and making it harder on themselves they're kind of transcending you know the rules of their situation which are no tell on jim and do it in an orderly fashion and it, I guess and it, it creates space to evolve new type of artisans right right yes which you know like if you look at tom as dramatist or actor or humorist even him breaking the his kind of social norms help the next generation of people like tom to just go a bit further and that's kind of what i thought about from that whole section of the book so i get yeah i guess in in this sense we're saying that the rules can be ridiculous yes obviously in this case the rules are ridiculous and and yet they're so ingrained that people don't really question them. One of the ones I think about a lot on this is marijuana. Yeah, okay. Uh, like, I think it's a good example, right? People were just so convinced that marijuana was evil. There's a big stigma. Yeah, huge to, stigma. Like, a, a, a moralized, well, it's a drug. Yeah, whereas, like, so is alcohol. Alcohol freely consumed across human civilization, like... And very damaging at times. We see this in Huck Finn, right? We see the damage that alcohol brings to his life, how it's ruined his father, eventually kills his father, it seems, to some degree. And yet, marijuana is, like, way worse. Like, one is legal and everyone kind of does it, and the other is this abomination. And I'm not sure how... I mean, in Canada, everyone just started breaking the rules. (laughs) Like, Like... yeah, sixty percent of Canadians have smoked marijuana in their life in the last month. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like I'm not saying good or bad about whether you should be smoking lots of marijuana or not. What I'm saying is, it was illegal. They just and everyone helped just, the rule evolve. Yeah, 
And then suddenly it was like, well, the rule doesn't really matter because everybody's breaking it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so, so, a lot, so, and, and this also goes to politics to a degree because politicians are not generally innovators of ideas or pushers of ideas. They are usually the consumers of ideas. Yeah. And we take the legalization of marijuana, for example. Eventually it reached this critical mass of people who are breaking the rule where it's like, well, we're just going to change the rule. And, and get rid of it because no one's obeying it anyway. It's not worth the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think you're right. It, it takes people just kind of being like, this is a stupid rule. Yep. And I think that what is so... There's the threshold case, which is like marijuana, which you just talked about. I think there's also the... I don't even know what you would call it exactly case. But where Tom and Huck could say... They could just kind of like one-dimensionally oppose the rule and say no we don't think we should give you jim or and say we're gonna do it our way and we think you're wrong and it's just defiant and then it's just a battle right it's a it's a confrontation but they don't do that they just subvert the rules through creativity and specifically with jim and but they kind of also are well tom is always subverting rules with creativity yes, right? like that's yes. his whole life <laughs> and Yet, rule subverted, rule not followed through. Oh, really? Nothing that bad happened. Actually, what happened is people had fun and there was more laughs and there was like a, a deep satisfaction in Tom and a lot of other people around Tom based on his antics. And so it's like the transcending case, I guess, where it's the people getting around the rules do it in such a clever way. And that brings so much more kind of joy and happiness to the people around them that eventually it's almost or like an emergent way. Like it's just like, okay, well, these old norms don't work anymore because we've had this new creative genius come by and show us a new thing that we can do, right? Like there's maybe before Tom, no one knows the Tom way. Right. Right. No right. one knows the way of making it harder for yourself unnecessarily for some sort of imagination and humor's sake. And then like once you read it and like just the deep satisfaction that as the reader you get from just reading Tom do that. You know right. I mean? And being like, This is I, I I got a little frustrated. I was like, I feel like you're just <laughs> going way overboard here, man. Exactly, right? Yeah. But then again, Tom like that kind of thing being so what Tom is and and the grip he's had on folklore and literature post that, like he's obviously charmed his way into the hearts of many people. And I don't know, it's like, it's this isn't a, like any kind of like, you can point to it and say, this is what happens. I just kind of have a suspicion that there's an emergent quality in the human psyche that norms change based on creativity getting around them and well I think mixed mixed also with i think good moral arguments as the, well the human love of the trickster right yes. i mean we go to loki we go to the endless pantheon of trickster gods mm -hmm. and they're so beloved generally and, yeah. and often they're the stories that people want to hear the most pan like yeah so yeah I, I agree there there definitely seems to be an emergent quality in the human psyche that the trickster is somehow good mm -hmm. and by subverting the laws is showing us something good and good in ourselves or, just, or, and like maybe just showing how easy it is to get around a dumb rule. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which I mean, you know, yeah. Which you can do 
with having 60% of a population engage in an activity that is illegal. Yeah, and it's something like... <laughs> eventually... Like, oh, the law doesn't really And especially anymore. in a democracy, eventually, like, well, this is okay. This is dumb. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's also partly how easily Tom flouts his norms <laughs> and gets away with it. Where you're like, oh, maybe if it's that easy... There's something worth not having here. Which is, interestingly, why a lot of people wanted to ban Tom Sawyer. Well, of course. Because, you know, subverting norms and well, it's, and making it be a good thing to be a trickster. Or this to... is the deep anxiety that the status quo type have over giving young people new ideas. This is why Socrates was put to death. Yes. His yes. charge was corrupting the young. Essentially, this is why Jesus was put to death, because corrupting the young, also lots of other people, <laughs> just young and not, people, just corrupting yeah. people. But the anxiety in a kind of puritanical psychology or a the people who have power or the people who run things, the anxiety they feel over new ideas, because anything new, anything new is a threat to status quo thinking, doing, saying. And so a new way to be Tom Sawyer, <laughs> who his entire, you know, existence is upheaving the apple cart <laughs> for yeah, yeah. for the pompous. And and you know Of course you'd want to get that making band. those in authority look silly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I I love in going back to Tom Sawyer where he's he's selling or he's buying the scripture reading prizes off people and then hands like they you get a ticket for the number of scripture verses that you've read and he just starts buying them off all the kids and then like puts it in to get to win the prize because yeah. he's memorized so many <laughs> got around <laughs> he got around the yeah he's he's floating the system that's true. a beautiful example of um commerce trumping uh, spirituality <laughs> all right uh Uh, i think yeah we're so we yeah i agree there's a i think there's something there there's an insight there yeah (laughs) it's deep down (laughs) um so the next thing i just wanted to like we already talked about huck's dad really terrible like he's just dumb and petulant and he's like an archetype of a warning well it's like (laughs) stay uh, away from the booze you've mentioned this a few times but uh there's the he's the hard-headed hard-hearted yes like yeah in that, no, not hard, in that quadrant not, sorry soft-minded he's soft-minded and hard-hearted yes because like which is the hardest person oh and he's got this weird conception i mean and there are parents that, that struggle with this from what i could tell that he owns his children or his child and that any success or money that he he his child has received actually belongs to him because he went through the the hardship of raising huck which Really seemed to be the hardship of beating him and, and then <laughs> it's so hard to him. beat you up every day, Huck. <laughs> so I'm going to beat you up now because you bring that extra inconvenience into my life. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's just a uh, he's yeah. a so I don't yeah I mean I just him in the book is I think plays more the role of the sadness of Huck's situation being made known to us the reader that maybe isn't made known to everyone who comes across Huck and treats him as such a kind of a someone not even worth talking to uh but i feel like we should talk a little bit about the duke and the yeah, king i was just thinking that <laughs> you know i mean they're some of the most fun characters yeah in the they book. are they are though they are 
slimy as well, fuck. Well, tying it back to what you were saying earlier about this emerging quality we have in Tom Sawyer, and to a, to a degree, they are kind of the corruption of that. They oh, are yeah. the they are what happens. The bridge when you, too far. Yeah, when you go and you take Aston anything, you know, mo- moderation and everything, and when they ta- they've taken this to an art form, but. Uh, of subverting the rules and subverting social norms, but it's all deception. Yeah. As opposed to what seems to be trickery, which I would argue is very different than deception. They are utilizing people's ignorance to violate them, to steal from them. Yeah. Well, they prey on their weaknesses. Yeah. To fleece them. Yeah. Exactly. Which, and so, like, the difference being when Tom, Tom does low stake tricks that educate. <laughs> Hopefully. Right, right, right. right yes. That actually build a resiliency in people for future con artists or connivers or whatever, or tricksters, right? And so Tom can see the weaknesses in others, but he doesn't exploit them. He just, it's, he's kind of like a vaccination. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, like he, yeah. he's, That's a good he's, way of he's it. the smallpox vaccination, whereas the king and the duke are smallpox. Yeah. <laughs> you've got they, it. You've contracted it at this point. Yeah. And so. In that comparison, Tom's actually helping them by right. tricking them I like a bit that. because he's doing it at such a low level cost-wise to them. But he can see the weakness. But the king and the duke, they see people's gullibilities, like the people in the towns that they go to. They see their gullibilities and their thoughtlessnesses and their weaknesses, and they go straight for the throat and then the wallet. And like, let's not pretend ourselves. These are the hard-headed, hard-hearted people in society like they're the ones that are wolves they're looking for they want to eat the sheep and they're looking for they're smart these guys are not dumb they can memorize plays they're they're highly intelligent manipulators of emotion uh i mean we even see in the when they arrive at the funeral and and basically pretend to be the the uncle and or the two uncles yeah like they are they are masters of manipulation (laughs) right like that scene that scene reminded me of uh, Wedding Crashers, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they just show up and they're like, they've got stories and they made their stories work. And like these guys are dangerous. Yeah, and they so like they meet up with Huck on the river. So like it, it appears they're running away from yeah a group of people that they've tricked up to that point. Sure. And he's just there, and they end up kind of taking over on the raft. Yeah. And so they they get on Huck's raft with Jim. And and then convince well they don't actually convince Huck and Jim but they think they've convinced Huck and Jim that they're a duke and a king yes and I love that scene actually because because these two tricksters don't really know each other at this point they've just met and one of them says I'm a duke and suddenly like oh man and Jim and Huck are just like serving him and calling him some royal t- phrase yeah but then the other the the king convinces them that he's the dauphin mm-hmm. and he's the yes <laughs> he's the rightful yeah, heir yeah, yeah. to and, the throne and i mean really w- they have all their shenanigans right they're like they're, they're kind of like part circ they got a they got a show they have a like a, a almost a i know this is before vaudeville but they've got like a vaudevillian type show where they've got dancing singing tricks they're magicians they're jesters they're the whole kit and caboodle of what anyone might be to entertain. But really what they're doing is they are letting people's guards down or inviting people to let their guards down so that they can wiggle in some other way to get a lot of money out of the people in the town. And what is so uh, satisfying for me, but also 
just Mark Twain at his finest is how often, and certainly in one major scene, but also kind of passively in comments, how often the townspeople are defending the Duke and the King to the people who are calling them out. So the people in the towns who are able to see through their ruse and to understand that this no these two guys are charlatans and they're trying to take your money those people who point that out to the crowd get shout down and hated on and there's a great line where the duke says to the king or the king says to the duke because they're talking a little bit about like well what if we get caught they're gonna tar and feather us at least kind of thing and one of them says hain't we got all the fools in town on our side and ain't that a big enough majority in any town <laughs> And so, like, the the deep cynicism aside of that comment, just the danger of a of a rabble that's sure of itself. Well, and they feed the rabble what they want. They feed them the emotional story. Like, again, how how do they get the the crowd on side? Well, you know, there's six thousand dollars, which is like a, a massive amount of wealth at that time period, and they give it to the daughters. It has been supposedly granted to them in the will, right? As the uncles or who they're supposed to be. And they then give it to the daughter. I believe her name is, yeah, it's Mary. They give it to Mary and say, here's, you know, we're going to give it back to you. And and suddenly they're like, oh, these generous uncles who love their, their nieces. Like, oh, what angels. Yeah. And, and of course, like what's super important here is none of the people in the town, including the family, have seen these guys before. Oh, yeah, and, like, this is before the internet. This is before photography. Well, not before photography, but, like, there aren't going to be any pictures. and Like, they don't know who these people are for sure. No. But they're just instantly trusting based on their charisma. Exactly, exactly. And these and they've been honing this art form of deception for a long time and emotional manipulation. Like, that's the thing. You watch it happen in almost all their interactions throughout the book. It's just emotional manipulation to get calculated oh and 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 there's that show i think that's called the no show or the no one show that they that they put on they go into this town and they invite everyone to the show and a whole bunch of people show up and they put on basically nothing right they do like five minutes and they're like that's the end and and they're just really pissed they're like give us our money back and just no you don't want to be the fools who leave here and and you know you've been tricked so like tell everyone else in the town to come to the second and third show and then you won't be the one that's tricked and everyone else will be, you know, tricked as well and it won't be as embarrassing. And they do it for two nights. And then they know that on the third night, the whole town's going to show up and be ready to, like, have their joke on these guys for being deceived. They don't show up for the third show. Yeah. Right? They know they're they're planning ahead. They know how people are going to think. And they know how they want to deceive. They're master manipulators of psychology. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, and so like in a in a much in the broadest sense, they are, I guess, representing the the really awful danger of not being able to think critically. Like what actually can happen to you if you don't think critically, because the people who don't think critically in these towns lose tons of money, let alone <laughs> they lose face. Yeah. But they also lose a lot of money. And uh, one of Twain's great quotes outside of this book probably arguably one of his most famous is that no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public (laughs) (laughs) 
which is Ooh. on full display in this yeah. part of the book. And not just how these people get hosed by the king and the duke, but how the, how ho- the townspeople work the hardest when they are silencing the people who are trying to help them. Yeah. Like w- yeah. the 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 rubes or the people who are getting fleeced by the king and the duke their their highest level of vitriol and self-assuredness and self-righteousness comes when they are verbally abusing the people who are trying to point out that this is what the king and duke are doing to them. So it's all saved for the people trying to help them, which is, you know, obviously a double tragedy. But it definitely leaves a taste in the mouth where you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's kind of not worth it being someone who speaks out <laughs> on other people's yeah. behalf if you're going to get all this hate back. But how you kind of need to still because it's a principle and that I guess it's a kind of a more like of a it's like a message I guess to people who anyone who might be a whistleblower type or a speaking out type is that not only obviously the people speak out get (laughs) are not well liked by the king and the duke but you also very well might get hate back from the very people you're trying to help. Because they're, I mean, people don't like the idea of being tricked. Yeah. And, and, and so like, obviously people's egos are on the line, but there's also a kind of mindlessness that is easily able to be back in the gutter again from where it's trying to be pulled out by others. This is like a little bit tangential, but it's kind of a phenomenon I sometimes refer to as the liberal's dilemma. Okay. Small L liberal, like uh, a liberal-minded person where a lot of times a liberal person is often an advocate for people who are dispossessed or worse off or the working class or you name it, right? And often you can set up a big case for them and you talk about their plight and then the people the very people you're advocating do something that cuts the legs right out from under you to the people you're advocating to and obviously in a sense like very on the nose they're cutting the legs off like the people who are trying to help the townspeople from the king duke getting their legs cut out by the townspeople themselves saying we don't want you get out of here but i'm thinking like for my own life there was this era of my university life where i was a student leader and we part of our job descriptions, we were advocates for the students and residents. And there was a, I guess, mildly controversial new rule placed into residents this year that no beer bottles were allowed in residence because of the destructive nature of beer bottles and people throwing them. And, um, you know, the group I was a part of got all up in arms about this restriction on, you know, people's autonomy, etc., it's so funny looking back at the things that captured your passion and attention at one point <laughs> yeah, in life. But yeah, you know, we're like, we had this like, well, you're restricting people's economical choices. You are paternalizing people who behave well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We make all these great cases. And yet every weekend, the people who are like all the students, not all, like a, a handful of the students and residents who are advocating for, just breaking beer bottles on buildings again and breaking windows and throwing it. So like, 
every weekend we're starting from square one because it's like, well, all, all that administration has to do is like, just look at reality. This is what the people who you are trying to help are doing. And this is what we're trying. Yeah. And this is what we're trying and, to stop. That's and this, very interesting. This kind of phenomenon is something I've kind of passively referred to as the liberals dilemma. What do you do when all the people you're trying to help cut your legs out from under you while you're trying to help them? And how do you still maintain your liberal or let's say <laughs> democratically humanist philosophies when, when the very people, when the people that you're help. trying to <laughs> help out would be the first ones to grab you and pull you back in so they could get out. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, and it's, I don't say that in a despairing manner because I actually think realizing that galvanizes me and orients my thought process much better because I'm a, I feel a little bit less naive. Well, it's also like you're no longer, you're no longer hurt by that reaction because you have a better understanding of it. And you're like, well, while you may be undermining me, you probably don't even realize you're undermining what I'm trying to do. And I'm going to stand, like you said, on that principle and continue to do it. It's kind of the moment where I, before then I was a bleeding heart liberal. And after that, I was just a liberal. Right. (laughs) Your heart stopped bleeding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, like uh, I tongue-in-cheek make the reference like the the hard-minded soft-hearted person is the bleeding heart liberal without the bleeding heart right right <laughs> i like that i like that <laughs> so anyway all of that to just kind of put a little pinnacle on the king and the duke i don't know if you have any other thoughts about the king and the duke what they represented to you or what they made you think of i also well the ending of their relationship i think is one of the the more fascinating parts about them because they never really trust each other and and they're the kind of people who can never really ally with anyone. And you see this at the end when they're when they've lost all of the wealth that they they were trying to acquire before they sell Jim and abandon Huck. They are fighting with each other because they're like, "Well, we've lost all this wealth, whose fault is it?" And there and one of them's like, "You were planning on stealing it from me." And it, I mean, it's funny cuz Huck actually was the one that put it in the coffin. But they both think it was the other one because they're used to continually trying to trick one another or to trick everyone. Right? They're working together to trick people for a while. But at the end of the day, that's how they view the world. And it's really interesting how lonely that is actually going to make you if you're constantly trying to manipulate and trick others. Just by acting that out over and over again, yeah. you're going to assume that's what everyone else is trying to do too. Well, yeah, and I mean, once you, you, when your whole life is deception, you have to be on your guard all the time because you know people are going to come for you. Because and you also and you know that that's what you would do. You would deceive, right? Mm-hmm. And so you you start projecting your own reality onto other people. And in the case, also they're not naive. They know that people are deceptive and, and full of trickery. And the king looks at the duke, and the duke looks at the king, and is like, "If I could get it one over you, I would." And I suspect you're—I I see that you're the same kind of person as I am. I've allied with you in doing this, so I'm expecting that. And I thought that was a, a really interesting. Just Mark, it just shows the power of Mark Twain's mind, how he's able to take these circumstances and just pull out these lessons, like the loneliness of acting in this way versus the wholesomeness and the community you get with acting the way that jim and huck do mm-hmm. helping one another yeah the being... un the uneasiness that deceivers make of bedfellows yeah of themselves their, yeah. their paranoia 
right? Like you're, you're not, you're no longer exist, existing in a place of comfort and safety and, and trust. And, and like in a, such a, it's so perverse that it actually becomes logical to preemptively fuck over the other one. Exactly. Because you know that they know that you might, so you actually should do it before they think that you might, even though you know it's coming. So yeah. it's, it's actually like there's a, there's a sense to it. You're living in a constant prisoner's dilemma because your whole way of operating the world is a zero-sum game. Yes, and right. and that's and it's you know obviously well, and I think that that's um is a uh, a good testament to what I truly believe is that the only stable and sustainable form of social interaction is reciprocity. Yes, and reciprocity yeah. that you can trust. Trust underlies reciprocity, even though they're friends. There's, I guess, you could frame Huck and jim's relationship in terms of being reciprocal as in <laughs> huck helps jim run away and jim <laughs> deeply entertains huck well and takes <laughs> care of him yeah and yeah helps him in numerous different ways yeah so yeah i think that that's that's a good point because it's it's the end inevitable end game of the deceptive life well it's like you know if you if you build up you know if, this, if I continue on this path for 10 years, this is what my life will look like. If I continue on, if I go on this path, hopefully this is what my life will look like. Want the, the hell that you're trying to avoid by not being a deceptive and manipulative person is that you're not going to, you're going to be so lonely, mm-hmm. like just utter loneliness. Yeah. And uh, I think a great line for the gravestone of the King and the Duke. And this r- reveals, I think the Republicanism of Mark Twain, not the current party in America, but more the more philosophic stance on republicanism is he writes, and I think it's Huck talking, but it's obviously Twain. Sometimes I wish we could hear of a country that's out of Kings. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's it <laughs> like, what, a, what is a better line for the United States <laughs> than that one? <laughs> a country that's out of Kings. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so there's just a couple few other things I wanted to touch on. There's, um, a good little section at the beginning, like uh, early in the book where Huck is talking to and about Miss Watson, who is the housekeeper. Yeah, she's said. the housekeeper yeah. for the widow. Right. Or, she seems to have some higher role. I'm not entirely sure because she also seems to own, she's the one that owns the slaves. Right. Not the widow. Okay. So I'm not sure. I actually, it's it's not a clear relationship to me, but. She's around. But she's around. And right. talks to Huck. I think the widow lives with her. Okay. Or I don't know how it works. And so anyway, this Miss Watson lady is the one who is most forthrightly giving Huck a hard time about God and religion. And Huck has this hilarious little... He always says he, whenever someone tells him something, he just goes out in the woods to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's his so, natural habitat, right? Yeah. He likes the woods better. So he's he's out in the woods and he's thinking about like, well, if you just... Because apparently Miss Watson told him, well, you got to pray for things you want. He's like, well, I guess if I prayed, if prayer worked like that, then this person would get the money that they need and not be in debt. And this person would get this and this person would get this. And they don't. So I'm guessing. But he says, I warrant guess it's not that's what happens. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, that's not what. And then he goes back and Miss Watson says, well, you're actually, you need spiritual gifts. Like doing things for others, helping them, being kind. And then he goes back into the woods and says, yeah, but that sounds good for everybody else except me. I don't know about that. And then he gets into like more kind of low-level theological conversations with Miss Watson and how 
his like final meditation on his interactions with Miss Watson are basically, I really like the God that Miss Watson talks about, but I don't like the God she seems to personify through the way she talks to me and her actions and the way she treats other people. There's two, two kinds of providence. <laughs> yeah, two kinds of providence. And so to me, there are like these two kind of pillars, these two massive categories of people who claim to believe in God. And there's the loving God, and then there's the judgmental God. And I think what Huck is referring to in this situation is Miss Watson talks about the loving God, but she personifies the judgmental one. And from the point of view of psychology, I think this encapsulates different human temperaments. Yeah. (laughs) Different ways that people conceive of what they would even want out of a deity kind of thing. But I don't know. I wanted to bring that up to... Get, have you give your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, one of the worst human tendencies uh, is to project what what we want onto not only other things or not other people, but out of the concept of God, let's say. And I think the desire for a judgmental God comes from three things, at least in my thought experience on this. The first would be a desire for control. So... I think humans love order and they love putting things in their proper boxes and saying this is the way that things work and this is the way that they are. This is good. This is bad. This is us. This is them. It, the dichotomizing of life is is, is a, a freeing mental place to be to some degree because suddenly you are no longer tormented by the gray. You're, you got black and white. But the problem, the, the need for black and white, you need a bad guy. You need a, Everything can't just be white. And you need some contrast. Light and darkness have to have a contrast to one another. And what I think that produces in a certain temperament, let's say, is feelings of moral righteousness by being a certain way and following a certain set of rules or principles and then believing that that is what God cares about because that's what you care about because that's what gives you your defense against the chaos fundamentally. That's the first uh, thing. The second thing is that, and this is actually a, a cruder and more, more dangerous version of it, in my opinion, is the one that wants to feel better than others and wants some kind the superiorist of... Superiorist. Yeah, wants some kind of, of rubric. My God's bigger than your God. And a great example of this is Huck's dad. Huck's dad hates the idea that... Uh, a black person could be free and equal. And he goes on this diatribe about how when he went up to the north and there was this free man who was black, who was wealthier than him, and he thought it was disgusting and immoral and wrong because in his way of thinking, there had to be people that he was better than. And and in his society, he was supposed to be better than slaves. And yet he was now seeing someone that he perceived not as a human but as a slave Doing better than him. Doing better than him. And it was horrible. And I think uh, just on a moralistic standpoint, often you find people who who believe in the judgmental God will be so upset when someone... Who should be worse off than them are doing better. Here's a good example. Kyle in South Park is horrified that Cartman has got all this money and and buys Cartman land. That's a judgmental position that wants people to be that are bad according to their rubric of good right and wrong to do worse right and then i guess the third thing 
is some people just want to control others. Some people, their sense of power comes from people doing what they tell them to. Mm -hmm. And I think you see this most clearly among very, very religious people, and particularly religious leaders, is they will try to impose their view of things on others yeah. and, and their rules and their laws. And I think you see this, I mean, the Pharisees are, a, are an example of this, creating so many rules and laws that you basically control a person's every waking moment. Yeah. And that, I think, is the most evil because it's not about even the belief in something yeah. else. It's it's literally power. It is a desire. And I think, at least in my mind, it is the weakest form of power or the most sinister form of power because it because it relies on existential threats. Yeah. Yeah. And and all of those three things that you talk that you said there, they're so dependent on an ugly side of human nature. Yes. Which yes. is both the the twin side of towering over others and prostrating yourself in front of others you know like that the the unhealthiness of both being dominant over others and being totally submissive to others and i think one of the great well one of the great things that makes christianity so interesting is the like never-ending dynamic tension between the god of love versus the god of judgment and the people that I have seen in my life who portray the God of judgment are people that I have, e- well, when I was younger, I was terrified of. Now I'm at best tolerant of. <laughs> at best. <laughs> yeah. Um, but more commonly just like either annoyed or disgusted by versus the people who kind of embody a more god of love type of mentality of christianity which is you know some of the greatest people to be around i've ever been around some of the most caring intelligent thoughtful kind people and i think that i mean i have so many hilarious memories of growing up because i grew up in a christian family in a church and just having so many hilarious memories of just Christians fighting with other Christians about oh. Christianity. Yeah. And just and, yeah. and I and I actually have a distinct memory of I must have been like six or seven and thinking to myself, if this is absolute truth, why is anyone fighting about it? Like yeah. that's that's just what yeah. truth means. <laughs> you know? And and so I mean, not to put too much more into it, but I kind of, when I grew up, growing up, God and religion were kind of all just one thing. Everything was part of it. Yes, yes. And so, and I mean, just I'm very empirically minded. So the scientific thesis of Christianity was what made it true to me, right? Like the earth really was 6,000 years old. Adam and Eve really were the first people. And so this was, at, I actually had um, these kent hoven videos oh, why man. evolution is so stupid this creationist <laughs> yeah, guy and, I, I also like and this was the those. this was the part of the story that mattered to me so as i got a bit older and i uh read even one science <laughs> textbook and got just a better education about it i started separating 
different parts of religion out. I actually think a word like religion is basically useless because it covers too much. Any word that has too much under its aegis is a useless word. You need to get more detailed. And so at this stage, I see, okay, if I look at Christianity, because this is the religion I know best, Christianity, empirically true? No. Metaphysically true? Probably not. It's incoherent. The story contradicts itself. There's three people who are God, but there's one, but one of them is his own dad and one of them is his own son, but they're actually the same person. And at the same time, they're also a apparition. You're just playing with words at this point. And so that's fine. (laughs) I can't even, from a metaphysical point of view, I can't even say Christianity's wrong. All I can say is I think it's incoherent. Right, right. And so, but like, you know, my early 20s atheist, like, hardcore atheist days have been like and that's it full stop that's all that matters subsequently i've been like okay well there's also a component of christianity that has a kind of a social ethic to it that has really interesting so when i read people like emerson i'm reading someone who has the christian ethic if not the empiricism or metaphysics and i'm like wow like that's really beautiful actually like the way he talks about nature and the world and god not as jesus the deity but god as that like kind of thing that makes him want to go and be with his friends like oh that's interesting like that's not that's an idea worth mulling over and keeping and then more recently i would say a fourth major category of christianity to me has been uh the psychology of the stories in christianity that has been revealed through jordan peterson and his work and how i can listen to a sermon and be bored out of my mind as soon as it's in a psychological frame like uh, uh, the way that stories capture people, I'm just riveted. I'm listening to Jordan Peterson talk about <laughs> Cain and Abel in a in a fascination that never happened in Sunday school. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, I, and, I completely and know so what you mean. so part of my working thesis on this is that the apex of the psychological significance of something is probably just what metaphysics is. Right, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. And... I, again, use those words not as tangible things, but as, like, the the fact that these stories are the ones that survive and the ones that have so much meaning and you can still draw so many lessons from in the Bible. I'm like, okay, there's that, something. That means something. Yeah, that yeah. means something very deep. Just don't, just keep it out of science class and realize that when you talk to me about heaven and hell, I don't think you're making any sense. <laughs> That's yeah. That's really. I like. I like that. Uh, and there might be more areas too than those four, but those are the four that seem the most obvious to me. That Christianity, at least explicitly or implicitly, claims to play a part of in human affairs. Yeah, and I, going back to what you were saying about the religion not having meaning, I completely agree. But like using it here just to say, oh, so dogma. Let's say dogmatism versus critical thinking, empathy. Let's say dogmatism okay. versus empathy. Okay, right. and I think. That's the great struggle that Christianity has kind of gone through, not just as a religion, but as the, in the psychological reality of the human mind, right? Yeah. Because I don't think it's... I think you could see this with dogmatism in communism. I think you can see it all across all ideology. As soon as you simplify the world into a set of principles that need to be followed in order to attain utopia, in order to obtain heaven, in order to obtain yes. anything. What you're you are not you are no longer talking about psychology in the sense of like well being, mental well being, in terms of love, in terms of taking care of one another, in terms of, you know 
the golden rule, you are now talking in the in terms of power mm-hmm. and, and and control and these the concept of the infallible truth is what is so motivating for despotic societies. So when I think of like the infallible truth of Marxism in Stalinist Soviet Union actually has much more in common with infallibist notions of like the Roman Catholic Church in the in the, you know, Middle Ages when they were burning people at the stake for heretical ideas like well maybe the earth isn't the center of the universe right <laughs> yeah. like that that's the psychological mechanism that allowed like church leaders to do that to people in middle age or renaissance italy i think is the same is a is a relatively similar mechanism to what allowed stalin and others do what they did in the soviet union to people i agree and to take that I love that this theme that seems to be developing about the hard-minded, hard-hearted person. Because what they discover is that you can control people. Because what is one of the most powerful things you can do for a person? Give them certainty. Now, on a on a deep level, like say in a relationship, giving them certainty that you are going to love them until the day they die, that is so powerful. So certainty is an incredibly powerful human emotion giving them certainty about the nature of the universe, giving them certainty about their role in the universe, giving them a place and meaning and purpose, that is incredibly psychologically powerful. Because going back to what you're saying about the church um, with with the Inquisition and stuff like that, what's fascinating about that is it's probably the, the people that were carrying it out truly believed it. But we see in the cases of, of wherever it might be, that the people who have the power that are utilizing this ideology to maintain their power often don't believe it, or at least they're certainly not acting in a way that would make it you think they believed it. They're wised up to the game. Yeah, they're playing a game. And I think that's the great evil of religion and, and ideology, is the not just desire and need for control that these people have, but the the uses of that power and control to suppress to subvert to yeah. manipulate and and just the masses of people willing to commit to an ideology because of that certainty that it gives them and i think i mean this comes down to one of the most fundamental existential problems of being human and that is that we're going to die and if you give i mean peter berger one of my favorite authors and he's a sociologist says that Every ideology stands or falls by the power with which, and every religion, uh, the book's called The Sacred Canopy, stands or falls by the authenticity and the belief that the people have in the banner that they're carrying as they're marching towards death. Yeah. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, what it, that's a hugely psychologically powerful. And I think we shouldn't underestimate that because existing in this not knowing, let's say, is terrifying for people. Yeah. And giving them something that allows them to not have to worry about that anymore. A certainty, let's say, an infallible well, truth as And you were especially saying. with a religion, a supernatural certainty that transcends death. Exactly. Right? Uh, which is Freud's observation mm-hmm. <laughs> in I think his book The Future of an Illusion. How you can't help but notice how intertwined the fear of death is with 
the desire to get over it and how nice it is when there are ideologies out there that get out of death out of, get out of death free card yeah kind of thing. yeah and yeah. so but i think a lot of the truths that we find here the psychological truths there is that there's a war going on in the human psyche and that's the war that huck finn's going through yeah this whole book is what matters is it is it people is it this democratic humanism of loving one another or is it the rules and the law yeah and i mean i don't know the exact demographic breakdown of what it would have been like in huck and tom's time but it seems like all the adults believe in the judging god except for maybe a handful and the kids are kind of like well i don't know if i want that but they still care about each other so they're much more interested in that loving god aspect and so it's just interesting to think about how like this book would have been written in and set in a time where the puritanical faction would have been you know at its height in power socially and culturally in the united states and certainly in missouri and uh how twain is you know obviously himself a very (laughs) strident critic of religion and the religion of his time and how he gives to huck and to tom too this the characters of both of these boys are such that they almost by existing undermine the establishment in their in their town they they just totally just the way that they are there's a great albert camus quote where he says live so free that your mere existence is an act of rebellion (laughs) and that's kind of what tom especially and huck a little bit is too with the people around him and this is what i think is what's so difficult for people like miss watson and maybe any of the Miss Watsons you've ever come across in your life is this kind of, it's like a combination of charm, intelligence, free-spiritedness, carefreeness that doesn't want to hurt anyone, but doesn't really have any time for the norms of the people. And it just, I guess, so happens to be that for a long time, and still in a lot of places, the norm is kind of a, puritan christianity (laughs) that a lot of people have to deal with at least in the united states well i think this though and i will i was just thinking about this as you were saying that one of the most beautiful things i would argue that has ever happened and i think mark twain would agree is separating political and societal power from religion uh it's probably the greatest I would argue development in civilization. Well, certainly at a at a the level of nation state. Yes. Yeah. Yes. At that level, well, but definitely. taking away the power of the sword from them, because yeah, I think it has done amazing things for religion too. I think it's allowed it to become something other than it's taken the power seeking, power hungry people. They're not as interested in going into religion anymore because, like, they don't have the same level of power. Yeah, now they just become politicians. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know the point. The point is, the reason I think that's important is because they no longer have that psychological tool. Yeah, of of God to hammer people with. Like, yeah, well, and I mean, instead of cowering, people now just chuckle if you try that. Yes, you know, like yeah, 
you think of people who preach death, doom, and destruction in the park, probably once upon a time, people gathered out of respect and terror. And now, on balance, people gather out of humor and or don't gather at all and, they're mostly and, ignored from what i can yeah, yeah. In, in you know if they're paid attention to it's it's because they're a spectacle not because people are taking seriously what they say so anyway any last thought on huck finn i mean we've done a pretty I feel good like job i need to qualify uh, something that i said earlier okay which is that the last third of the book i i don't enjoy as much the only point that i want to make there is I feel like we're going into the, on this very serious journey and we're, we're getting these amazing psychological insights for the beginning and the middle of the book. And then at the very end, we get Tom Sawyer mucking around again. <laughs> and, like, and I guess for me, I was like, I just wanted Jim to be free. And I just had this like, oh, t- Tom's putting that in jeopardy with what he's doing. <laughs> like He's making it maybe not going to happen because he's got to make this into like some spectacle. And yeah. Adventure. The, the end of the book kind of feels a little bit like the tone is very different. So, so different. It yeah. kind of feels like uh, the end of Huck Finn is the adventures of Tom Sawyer addendum. Yeah, exactly. Like I feel like, <laughs> I feel like you go through and you get to the point where they're separated and Jim has been sold back. And we've gone through this really serious critique, which we didn't talk about, which was the um, the feuding families that destroy one another and just slaughter each other. Well, you want to watch, I think there's a show on Netflix, Hatfield and McCoy's. They did yeah. a dramatic retelling with Kevin Costner and Bill Paxton of that, and you can just watch that if and, you want to see yeah. <laughs> just the, the erosion of families through feuding. Yeah, and, and so we go from that to Tom Sawyer having to make like something out of this whole situation. Amazing book. When you get to the end, you might feel the same way I did, but look at the whole, the totality of it. And, you know, think about what Luke said, where sometimes the trickster has to, you know, break the, the law in artistic ways in order to, to truly to show, us to show what, how silly the law is. Yeah. And to show us where we can, where we can go next. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. I like that a lot. Um, and yeah, you're right. That is a weird narrative and tone turn the book takes. But I mean, like Jim still gets away. Yeah. So it's okay. Well, and then the other thing that really kind of bothered me is, is so then we find out that, that at the end of her life, Watson, or Mrs. Watson had felt bad about maybe thinking of selling Jim down to Orleans. And she'd actually made him a free man. And Tom knew this the whole time that he's doing this elaborate freeing thing. So there was and, actually nothing on the line? <laughs> well, for Tom, there was nothing on the line. There, there was for Huck the whole time because of what he thought <laughs> it sounds like tom being a shitty friend yeah, to a degree yeah i was also like why did you it was it was but the it one is keeping the in book. tom's character where tom like okay nothing bad's gonna happen so what's the harm in me having a little bit more fun somebody gets shot like, <laughs> like well i guess that's the yeah, harm I guess, I guess that's the harm <laughs> but i mean tom's still a kid he's learning i didn't understand that narrative choice i guess is what i would say but uh, well call send mr twain a uh an angry letter okay <laughs> Sorry, Samuel Clemens. <laughs> it's a little joke back from the Tom Sawyer episode where yes. I said we wouldn't say it. <laughs> I think, as I've been trying to think about, like, okay, what, probably the way I think about Huck Finn, the book, when, it, like, if I'm, if I, if it comes up, my thought about it is this, that what I loved so much about this book more than anything is that what we talked about for a bunch was this idea that 
Huck could have this dynamic moral tension in his own psyche and make an ethically superior decision based on nothing other than his own conscience. And not only that, but against all the countervailing evidence going in the other direction, society, culture, laws, etc. And so what I'm not saying that this means that just trust yourself or, or like, you'll know the right thing to do. What this gives me hope for is that there is a capacity in the human personality to be able to sometimes make the right or the ethical or the moral decision when there's so much evidence going in the other direction. Yeah. When it's a really hard decision. And so it's not that it's like, oh, well, because I mean, obviously a psychopath could have a <laughs> a bad gut reaction. You can't, so you can't like say, we'll just do that. So I'm not saying it's a principle. I'm saying this capacity, what gives me hope is not that it happens every time, but that it can happen at all. Yeah. That there I like actually that. can be this state of mind, I guess, that can overcome countervailing evidence just because you just kind of know that you like essentially that Jim's a person. This is this is what Huck says. He's got a line here. He says, "I do believe he cared just as much for his people as white as white folks does for theirn." And that line is so encapsulating of what it what it is in the book that makes Huck want to help Jim. It's just the purely humanizing interactions that they have with each other where and that's all Tom has. Like all or sorry, that's all Huck all Huck has to help Jim is his relationship with Jim. Yeah, and, and like, that's like all it takes to eventually win the day against everything else. And so again, it's not that this is this is what happens or even what should happen, but I'm saying it gives me hope to know that the capacity to make a good conscious decision does exist. And going off of that to repeat myself a little bit, but to build off of it, if you find yourself starting to believe things about people based purely on external evidence and nothing to do with those like external uncontrollable things about themselves or, or things or belief systems that they have. Maybe it's time to go and get to know someone who has those views and find out why they believe it and find out who they are. I mean, I've, I was homeschooled son of a pastor and people have often been floored and confused by my views on things. And I'm just like, well, do you know many homeschooled sons of pastors? <laughs> like, are you telling me <laughs> I have to go make friends with Boston Bruins fans? <laughs> uh, <laughs> everyone knows, them. just humanize okay. them. <laughs> everyone knows that there something's beyond the pale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sport, sports affiliations are definitely. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, that wasn't what I was referring. To. <laughs> I will, I will humanize with anyone, but. Not, but, a, not a Boston not, Bruins not fan. if they're a Bruin fan. The narciss- narcissism of petty differences. <laughs> petty differences. <laughs> Have you seen Brad Marchand? <laughs> He'll bite you. Anyway, All right. Yeah, just what a classic. Great book. I and hope like, you read it. Don't forget Hemingway said the best American novel ever written. And Hemingway was the best author if you asked him so he will (laughs) so so you can (laughs) listen you can take his word so anyway this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is david parker my name is luke mason thanks for listening guys 
and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.